<laughs> Welcome. If we haven't met before, my name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors on our teaching team here at Kesed, and I'm really glad you're here, uh, whether you're joining us in person or online. I just want to say thanks for, for coming and being a part of what God's doing here. We're really exciting, uh, excited about what's happening here and all that the Lord has for us, and we think he's got some really really something special planned for us today. But before we dive into continuing the series, we have two quick housekeeping items that I just wanted to inform you about. The first one is, uh, I just really want to highlight our worship and baptism night. It's in two weeks uh, today, so basically February 4th. And the reason why I want to highlight it is because we have baptisms that night. And if you're someone that's like new to your faith or you're just trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, baptism is honestly, from a biblical standpoint, an amazing first step to say, Jesus, I take my walk with you seriously, and I'm, I'm excited about inviting a church family along with me on the journey. So if you're interested, I want to encourage you uh, to, to register for that uh, because we'd love to help uh, guide you along the process. The second thing is uh, you may have uh, noticed that last week, or I'm sorry, two weeks ago, we had our week of snow and ice, or if you are an introvert, you might have thought of it as paradise. But, but for many of us, it was, we were like by day two or day three, just ready to get out of our house. We, were, we would have shoveled I-5 ourselves just to, just to get out. But one thing it highlighted for us was that we have such a large contingency of, and community of people who engage with Kesed online. You may not know that, but we have quite a, a, a church following and a church family that participates with worship through the online experience. And that snow week was a good reminder for us that, man, we pivoted online quick to worship together. And for some of you, it triggered a PTSD-like response to the pandemic. But there are a, like a lot of folks who it's one of their only ways to participate with church. And so one thing we wanted to do is I was tasked with uh, caring for that online community and figuring out ways to engage with them and kind of pastor that community so that way they can ha experience all that Jesus has for them. So one thing we want to do is collect and gather more information on the online experience so we can better care for people. So you may have noticed on your chairs is a survey and that survey is simply, uh, if you would be willing to fill that out, uh, it would help us be able to, to better understand the community and plan next steps to care for the community. So we're actually going to give you three minutes in this service to fill out the survey. Now, our preference would be that you would scan the QR code either on the screen or on the page online. You can scan it on your screen. Uh, our preference would be online, but if you're someone who's like, I don't want to, I don't either have a phone to scan it online or uh, I don't trust anything online, then fill out the paper. Uh, we'll give you three minutes and then you'll hold on to it until the end of the service and give it to the volunteers at the end. But I'm going to put three minutes on the screen. Would you mind taking a couple moments and filling that out for us? Thanks.
Okay, well, I want to say thank you for those of you that uh, were willing to fill out that survey. Again, if you filled out the paper copy, just hold on to that at the end of the service. We'll have some volunteers uh, towards the exit doors who would love to collect that from you. Uh, again, I, I really appreciate it because it, it helps us gather the correct information to better care for the community. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Now let me do a hard pivot and let's uh, launch into the series. But before we do, let's pray because I'm not very good at transitions. So pray with me. Father, I just want to say thank you so much for uh, this morning that we can gather, Lord. Uh, thank you, God, uh, for what you're doing in our community and our church here, Lord. Uh, and that in the heart of this series, it, our goal is to tap us into the very reason we were created, which was to create and cultivate a portion of the garden that you are, you are building here on this planet to help expand your kingdom uh, through the unique way you made us. So Lord, I wanna pray today that your spirit would impress upon each heart in this room exactly what you want us to know and experience. And Lord, I wanna pray for me that you would, uh, you would fill me up in such a way, Lord, where I can deliver the message in a way that glorifies you, in a way uh, help me to be okay with not being noticed. And ultimately, God, I wanna pray uh, that it's for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if this is your first week here or you're just checking out Kessid, uh, we're actually just in the thick of a series called uh, Paper Airplanes, diving into this truth that our creator has created us to create. And we've discussed that fundamental to our being is the desire to create. That when you're a kid, you're full of an imagination, dreaming, and playing. I, when my three-year-old, we put a piece of paper down in front of her and a pencil or a pen, we don't need to tell her, this is how you got to start drawing and this is how you think of what you want to draw. She, she just begins to create. That you, you put a piece of Play-Doh down, you put, a, you put a stick down and suddenly a kid's imagination goes wild. Their creativity starts to spill out of them. And the thing is, is uh, we pretty much lose sight of play and creativity right as we enter adulthood. But this is very much to our detriment in our own fulfillment. Uh, Dr. Stuart Brown is a renowned researcher on play and how it affects the brain. He actually uh, was the founder and launcher of the, the National Institute for Play. He, he's researched thousands and thousands and thousands of case studies on what play does for people. And in his book, Play, How It Changes the Brain, he articulates this when he says, I have gathered and analyzed thousands of case studies that I call play histories. And I have found that remembering what play is all about and making it a part of our daily lives are probably the most important factors in being a fulfilled human being. The ability to play is critical not only to being happy, but notice here also to sustaining social relationships and being a creative and innovative person. That creativity and play are connected, they're intertwined. And pretty much that if we just try to create without any sense of enjoyment for what we're creating, we're producing and it becomes utilitarian. But when you derive a sense of enjoyment out of creativity, man, you are a powerful person. You're a force in this world and for the kingdom. But the interesting thing is, is many of us stop creating and stop playing and stop enjoying because somewhere along the way, we've experienced a hurt, pain, or trauma of why we were not like someone else. That somewhere along the way, we begin to be trapped in what I call the comparison game, where suddenly we look at the world around us and, and we were told, whether extrinsically or intrinsically, why were you not more like that person? 
Why were you not more creative like them? Why were you not more articulate like that? Why were you not more popular or extroverted like that? And suddenly what we do is we create these narratives that we live by that the only way to be creative and to play and enjoy is if I were more like that. And as that famous uh, social media quote goes, comparison is the thief of joy. That the moment we are trapped in that comparison game, we no longer enjoy the unique person to which God created you and me to be. As a matter of fact, there's not even a single way to play. Dr. Stuart Brown actually distilled through his thousands of case studies that there's basically eight main play types, meaning that your play, you might play in a certain way that might be radically different than somebody. But suddenly along the way, we start to learn, well, my play type's not okay. I must need to, to adopt theirs and become more like theirs. As a matter of fact, let me just read for you his eight play types because I think they're fascinating. In your own head, you could be more than one, but you have probably a dominant one. I just would be curious if your own head, if you could keep track of which one you are. But he identified these eight play types, which is the joker is the first one, which the joker endeavors to make people laugh and may play by performing stand-up, doing improv, or just pulling a lot of pranks to make you smile. This is that person that just needs, to, like, just wants to make people laugh. They do practical jokes uh, as a form of a love language. The next person is the competitor who enjoys games and sports and takes pleasure in trying their best and winning. I just want to emphasize the word winning. This is the person who will only play a board game as long as they can win. <laughs> and uh, many a game of Monopoly was ruined by the competitor. No, I'm just kidding. But... But this is, this is that, that person that they want to challenge themselves uh, and they have fun by doing their best, but also by winning. The next person is the collector who loves to gather and organize, enjoying activities like searching for rare plants or rummaging around in archives or garage sales. I think if it wasn't a trademark infringement, Dr. Brown would probably say this is the person who collects Pokemon cards or baseball cards or Chevy trucks, but this is the person that enjoys <laughs> the process of collecting. You have the creator who finds joy in making things and can spend hours every day drawing, painting, making music, gardening, and more. This person just can imagine something in their mind and begin to, to implement a process that brings it to fruition. The storyteller has an active imagination and uses their imagination to entertain others. They're drawn to activities like writing, dance, theater, and role-playing games. I have a former student of mine that was in my youth ministry who, who spends, who literally his free time just dreaming up the novel he's going to write and imagines the world, the languages, the creatures in it, uh, literally derives a sense of fun from storytelling. The kinesthete, the kinesthete finds play in physical activities like acrobatics, gymnastics, and free running. And you may be saying, what's the difference between the kinesthete and the competitor? Basically, the kinesthete can run without needing to score a goal or make a basket. <laughs> so, so the kinesthete just wants to move. The competitor's like, I only want to move if I'm going to beat you at it. <laughs> The explorer likes to wander, discover new places, and things they've never seen through hiking, road tripping, and other adventures. Uh, the explorer is the kind of person who they never want to go on vacation to the same place twice. They, every year, like, what's the new place we're going to go to? And lastly, the director, they like to plan, organize, and lead others and can fit into many different roles and activities, from directing stage performances to running a company to working in political or social advocacy. Uh, 
the director is basically that friend you had that when you finally got engaged, had a clipboard ready to start planning your wedding for you. <laughs> My point in all of this is there's eight distinct play types. And, and Dr. Brown will actually articulate that one of our big challenges relationally is when we try to enforce our play type on another person or feel like another person's play type is enforced on us. And when that happens, what we do is we unwittingly either tell someone else, your uniqueness is not as important, or we feel like our uniqueness isn't as important. And therefore, we begin to compromise our own uniqueness. We begin to, to regret that we're made the way that we are. And that is one of the greatest tragedies in the human experience, is the moment we lose sight of the fact that how you are created, the uniqueness of your design, is a miracle. And I'll repeat it again, because it's easy to think there are 8 billion people on this planet. None of us are a miracle. But the thing is, is the fact that you are here, and you have breath in your lungs, and your heart is beating in your chest, that is a miracle. As a matter of fact, Dr. Ali Benazir, he, he actually crunched the numbers of the likelihood that you exist. Not the likelihood that humans exist, the likelihood that you as an individual exist. And when you crunch the numbers between the likelihood that a, a certain set of circumstances would happen or a certain combination of cells, the likelihood that you would exist is one in 400 quadrillion. That is 400 with 15 zeros. To give you, because again, the human brain is not really designed to think in that big of numbers, right? Uh, like whether it's a billion, a trillion, or quadrillion, we can't really distinguish the difference. So let me try for you. Uh, to win the lottery is one in 300 million. Very unlikely, right? Uh, that's eight zeros. You are, you are twice as likely to win the lottery than you are that you exist. Uh, to get struck by lightning is one in one million. Uh, that's six zeros. Uh, so basically, you are more likely to win the lottery three times while getting struck by lightning five times <laughs> than you are for you to exist. Again, if your brain can't wrap your mind around those numbers, let me just try another way. To count to a million, if you count a like a second, or if you count one per second, it will take you 11 days to count to a million. To count to a billion, it will take you 30 years. To count to a quadrillion will take you 31 million years. My point in this is you have no idea how unprecedented and how miraculous you are that to exist and to be you is a, a miracle of exponential proportion. And therefore, you must be here for a reason because you reflect a part of Jesus. You reflect, you reflect a part of your creator in a way that no one who has ever lived or will ever live has been able to or will be able to. That someone can know a part of the creator in a way so different than anything else they've experienced just by knowing you. And the challenge is, as we run into, I think that the enemy likes to, to coerce us into a belief that, well, I wish you were like someone else. And again, it robs us of our joy 
and the love that we, we experience in the design of our own uniqueness. Ephesians 2, Paul affirms this very idea in Ephesians 2.10, where he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, many of us have heard this verse before. It's a part of a, a famous diatribe by Paul. But, but one thing I just want to highlight here in verse 10 is notice here, we are his workmanship. And that word for workmanship, it, it, it's not the word for work. The, the original Greek word there has the idea of creation, that, that God enjoyed making you. It wasn't burdensome to make you. And that as he crafted you and crafted your uniqueness and, 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 and orchestrated the circumstances of your life and your story, he enjoyed it. Every part of it, he enjoyed making you. But he didn't just make you so he can set you on a shelf here. Notice here, he created you in Christ Jesus for your own good works. That which, notice here, God prepared beforehand. There's a creativity to your life. There's, there's something God's cultivating with your life which has been prepared for you since before time began. You are here for a reason. And, and you are meant to cultivate or create something that no other human being has been able to or will be able to. And yet, if you're like me, you lay up most nights wondering, why am I not like that person? And, and I just want to, you know, there's a lot of times where people like look at pastors and they think for, you know, there's a misconception that, that oh, that's the common person struggle. And I just want to tell you, pastors more than anyone else are trapped in the comparison game. That behind closed doors and many pastors, one thing they struggle with is why am I not that pastor? And it's such, I think the enemy laughs on the sidelines when we're trapped in that, that mindset. But we're not alone. The Apostle Paul actually, who wrote, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared before time began. Paul struggled with the comparison game, both externally and also internally. Uh, one of the churches Paul planted himself, he was the one that planted it. That church began to rise up against him because they were like, why were you not like all these other people? And one of their biggest criticisms of Paul was not what he taught. It was not what he, his character. What it had to do with was, why were you not Apollos? Why were you not Peter? Why were you not James? Why were you not John? And so one of the things Paul was constantly answering for to the church in Corinth was, why are you not someone else? <laughs> Paul writes to them in, in his first letter to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and, and beginning in verse eight, I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in the message. He says, and after they're like, why did Jesus appear to you last? It must have meant that Jesus liked you the least. As was basically their argument, and Paul addresses it in verse 8. And that he finally, Jesus, presented himself alive to me. It was fitting that I bring up the rear, meaning it was, it was fine that I was the last person to see Jesus alive. If you're going to rank importance in terms of who Jesus showed up to first, it's fine that I was last. I don't deserve to be included in that inner circle. As you well know, having spent all those early years trying my best to stamp God's church right out of existence meaning I know my story. I didn't get to walk with Jesus while he was alive for three years. As a matter of fact, I was one of the biggest opponents of the movement Jesus was starting early on. And you can say, why were you not one of those inner 12? Paul, Paul wrestled with it. It's fitting, I'm, I don't deserve to be in that group. But notice here, verse 10, but because God was so gracious, so very generous, here I am. And I'm not about to let his grace go to waste. 
Haven't I worked hard trying to do more than any of the others? Even then, my work didn't amount to all that much. Anyways, it was God giving me the work to do, God giving me the energy to do it. So whether you heard it from me or from the others, it's all the same. We spoke God's truth and you entrusted your lives. What Paul's saying here is, is I, I'm, I'm trying to leave the rat race of the comparison game because it doesn't matter whether I was the first for Jesus to show himself to or the last. All that matters is any work I do is because God has designed it. God has given me the energy. God has granted me the grace to be able to try to accomplish it. And I've been faithful. And the question for many of us is we get stuck in the first part of that argument. Why were you not someone else? So-and-so is much more creative. So-and-so is so much more organized. So-and-so is so much more fill-in-the-blank, whatever you think it is. And the thing is, is the Apostle Paul wrestled with that same mindset. In, in his fourth letter to the church in 2 Corinthians, he writes this. I know, fourth letter. Paul wrote a series of four letters. We only have two of the letters of the four. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 5, he again is wrestling with the same argument the Corinthian church has. That there's these guys called the super apostles who are really well-dressed, who are beautiful, good-looking guys, and they were known for being uh, amazingly eloquent speakers. Paul was not. Paul was short. The name Paul in Latin means small. Paul uh, was poor. And Paul uh, really struggled uh, with suffering. So much so that a lot of the church was like, if God was blessing you, you wouldn't be suffering. So God must not be blessing you, meaning you should not be in the role that you're in. And Paul in verse five of chapter 11 says this, that if you put up with these big shot apostles, these super apostles, why can't you put up with simple me? I'm as good as they are. It's true that I don't have their voice, haven't mastered that smooth eloquence that impresses you so much. I.e., he's saying here, it's true that I'm not near the speaker they are. I'm not. But notice here, but when I do open my mouth, I at least know what I'm talking about. We haven't kept anything back. We let you in on everything. Meaning, yeah, you guys want to follow these eloquent speakers, but you know nothing about their lives. Here I am. I may not be an eloquent speaker, but I've laid everything bare for you. Because the only thing that matters is the story that Jesus is cultivating in my life, the uniqueness of my design. And one thing that Paul, as he journeyed through his life, he began to experience was that there's a reason I'm not Peter. There's a reason I'm not James. There's a reason I'm not John, that God has designed me in a unique way and is developing that design to reach a unique group of people. That had he just made me Peter, had he just made me Paul, or sorry, James or John, I would not have been the Paul that was able to reach a group that no one else could. And Paul was able to, to discern this through uh, these kind of four realities of his life. And I'm actually stealing this from Pastor Brad Bell out of Fresno, but I think it's so good that for me, I wanted to share it with us because I think for each of us, if you want to know the uniqueness of your design, it is probably gonna be the convergence of these four realities. The first being your personality. That this workmanship Venn diagram, one of the key elements is your personality. And I just wanna say this because I think someone in here needs to hear it. Your personality is an asset not a liability. You may not know this about me, but I'm a pretty big introvert. Like, like for me, the snow week was, was kind of nice. 
And I, I also veer a little bit towards the melancholic. I can get a little sad. And I always wondered, God, why don't you make me like a happy, optimistic, upbeat person? I've actually prayed that prayer a lot. And then I remember, oh God, because you have, you have wired me in such a way in my personality to reach a certain group of people and to cultivate that personality in a way that communicates with people that the optimists can't. The second one is your experiences. So your personality and your experiences, that you are a product of a, a series of experiences that is constantly growing and they shape you. And for you to look at what are those key experiences in your life that have shaped you. Paul does that a lot, where he looks at his experiences and says, these have taught me and crafted me into the person that is for a specific task. Next is passions. Passions. What are the things that keep you up at night? The, the people that you want to reach? What are the, the things you want to create? The parts of the world that seem broken, that no one had to pay you a dime. You just were like, I, I want to help participate in that. that that's your passion. And then lastly, and probably maybe most importantly, your spiritual gifts. These are these, these unique set of gifts that are mentioned in Ephesians 4 or 1 Corinthians 12 and, and kind of all over the Bible or New Testament particularly, where God has endowed and gifted people with certain gifts, assets, uh, attributes, and abilities to bless and edify the church community and help expand the kingdom. Now, uh, your creative sweet spot is going to be the convergence of all four of those realities. It's going to be right in the middle of where all four of those align, right? That's going to be your creative sweet spot. And the thing about it is, is, is you kind of need to filter in all four because someone may have your experiences, but they don't have your personality. And someone may have your personality, but they don't have your experiences. And someone may have a combination of two of them, but they, you're the only person in all of existence that will be the unique combination of all four. And it's with that that Paul began to realize, no, God has uniquely gifted me in a different way from all the other apostles that he began to leave the comparison game behind. And he began to recognize God has, is cultivating something with my life that's so unique and important. In Philippians chapter three, beginning in verse three, he says, for we are the circumcision. Uh, the church in, in Philippi was uh, struggling with a group of false teachers who wanted the, the Gentile believers to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus. And he says, we are the circumcision. You don't need to be circumcised. We are the circumcision who are set apart, who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And Paul is going to begin to humble brag here, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In this short set of verses here, Paul has began to view his life through, as the sweet spot of all of those four realities. Notice here he talks of his experiences. I was a Pharisee. These men are coming in and they're trying to tell you that this is what the law says. No one studied the law more than me. Notice here he talks about his personality. There's no one more zealous than me. That when I set my mind to something, I'm gonna accomplish it. 
He talks about being blameless, that he's, he's responsible with the things that God has entrusted him. Instantly, he's showing you the uniqueness of his design. As a matter of fact, even in this little passage, you can derive a sense of his passions. Because Paul initially, when Jesus called him, felt called to the Jewish people. I need to share the gospel with all the Jewish people. And what God did over the course of his life was actually utilized him to reach the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. But he began to stand up to the bullies, the false teachers, because he knew the Torah so well. He began to say to these people who are coming in and saying, this is what the Torah says, and trying to beat the Gentiles over it with the, the Old Testament. Paul would be able to stand up to them. So much so that Paul became known as the apostle to the Gentiles. The uniqueness of his design was not a liability. It was an asset that God was using for his kingdom. And towards the end of his life, Paul will even expand on this a little bit more in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. And he's writing to a young 15-year-old pastor that Paul has set over the church in Ephesus, a guy named Timothy, his young mentee. And he says this as he intros his letter, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him. Even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ, in my insolence, I persecuted his people. Right here, he, he's telling you, everyone is gonna, is gonna bring this up for why I'm not as good as Peter, John, James, any of those other top tier apostles. But Paul's now gonna tell you why those have been so pivotal to his experience. Notice here, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them all. Instantly in the intro to this letter, he could say in the comparison game, I'm the most terrible person. I have no idea why God would, would call this person. Why didn't God just call another Peter? Why did God not just not call another James? Why did God not call another John? But notice here in verse 16, but God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners then others would realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God, amen. In this short intro, Paul is telling you, and by the way, he's, he's pretty close to death at this point, to being a, he's pretty close to his execution. And, and towards the end of his life, what he's discovered is God didn't want to create another Peter or James or John. God needed a Paul. And it's in my life, the uniqueness of my design and the uniqueness of my personality, experiences, passions, and spiritual gifts that God began to weave a life that could reach the people that no other person could reach. And had Paul spent his whole life in the comparison game, he would have missed it. He would have missed the wonderful, beautiful life that God was cultivating in him. 
And the interesting thing is, is Paul wrote over two thirds of our New Testament. Meaning he probably shaped the church more than any of those other apostles he was being compared to. But that's what God can do when we leave the comparison game behind. And we begin to discover and study ourselves in a way that we see the uniqueness of our design and begin to celebrate and live in it. In closing, there's this powerful story uh, of uh, the end of Rabbi Zusa's life. Rabbi Zusa uh, was a famous uh, rabbi out of Poland in the 1700s. And there's a story that on his deathbed, he began to cry uncontrollably. And his students and disciples tried hard to comfort him. They asked him, Rabbi, why do you weep? You are almost as wise as Moses. You are almost as hospitable as Abraham. And surely heaven will judge you favorably. Notice there, you're almost as, but not quite. (laughs) But Zusa answered them, it is true when I get to heaven, I won't worry so much if God asks me, Zusa, why were you not more like Abraham? Or Zusa, why were you not more like Moses? I know I would be able to answer these questions. But what will I say when God asks me, Zusa, why were you not more like Zusa? And I think one of the biggest tragedies in the human experience is to get to the end of our lives and learn that we never discovered why God created us as us. Because I think for someone in this room, you need to hear God has woven your life together for a reason, a unique one. The book True Faced has this great quote in closing where it says, God's ultimate goal is maturing us into who he says we are and then releasing us into the dreams he designed for us before the world began. And the goal of maturity is not to become a different person, but to become the unique person that God actually intended you to be. And so in a moment, I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna invite the worship team up. And then you'll notice uh, we have communion stations all throughout the room. Because one of the beautiful things about communion is Jesus took a meal that was celebrated for 1400 years at that point. That everyone was like, this is what these symbols mean. And Jesus is like, I'm gonna... We're writing a new story with this. And so this song, this song that we're gonna sing while we take communion is a reminder that Jesus is continually doing that with you to write the story that has been intended for you since the beginning of the world. And so uh, you can take communion at any of the stations, the ones nearest you, they're gluten-free so everyone can participate. And as you take it, I just want you to reflect on, man, God loves that he made you. Maybe we can do the same. So would you mind joining me? We're gonna pray. Father, I, I think for many of us in here, if they're anything like me, Lord, we can kind of sit in this space and we miss, Lord, that you didn't wanna create another person because you wanted to create us. 
there was something in our lives and in our stories and experiences and gifts and passions, Lord, that can uniquely reveal you, that we can create and cultivate our lives in such a unique way if we can realize the uniqueness of our design. So God, can we love what you've made out of us? And in doing so, revel and, and celebrate you. And God, I just, I wanna pray that there's someone in this room that needs to hear, Lord, that you love that you made them. They're not an accident, they're a miracle. So we love you, Lord. Thank you for this room and online full of miracles who are meant to cultivate in your kingdom. Lord, we lift this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. In the crushing, in the pressing, you are making new wine. In the soil I now surrender, you are breaking new ground. So I yield to you and to you care for him. And when I trust you, I don't need to understand. No. So make me a vessel and make me Make me whatever you want me to be. God, I came here with nothing, but all you have given me. Oh, Jesus, bring new wine out of me.
stand together and close out our time in communion with this song. Here we go. Oh, what can wash away my sin? Nothing, oh, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And what Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
Just thank you again for coming and joining us this morning. If you have not had a chance yet, we're gonna put the QR code back up here for the survey, so go ahead and take that. If not, you can bring your papers to the people at the doors. We love you, you guys have an awesome Sunday and we'll see you guys next week. Woo.